Everybody, welcome to the August 11th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the Denver Post celebrating its 125th anniversary this week. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Uh, this was nice. They hit 125 years. Now, the Rocky Mountain News would have hit 150. It just it was, it, it was uh, eliminated uh, just a, a year or so shy before its 150th. 125 is strong. Are we going to see 25 more out of the Post? Let's hope we see 25 more out of the post. Whether or not you like the post, whether or not you liked the Rocky Mountain News, whenever a, a daily paper disappears, it is sad. Whenever a weekly paper disappears, and that's happening around the country, it is sad. You need more media outlets, not fewer. The best thing was the wrap, if you, got the, if you still get the paper at home, which I and four other people do. Um, it had a wrap of the original cover, and it included a little story on Overland Park, which is gonna, we're going to be talking about a lot in the next year, but it was a jockey club at the time. I totally agree. I am one of those four people that also gets the paper delivered to their house. Uh, David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, Patty brings up a good point. That rap showed uh, their, front, their first front page stories, yeah. and it seemed that while the details have changed, a lot of the issues that we talk about around this table really haven't changed 125 years. What do you think? Well, that, that's right, and that's why, for example, the U.S. Constitution is still a, a relevant document because human nature uh, doesn't change, ev even though the, the, the details can. Um, and in that regard, the current management of the Post, the hedge fund that is slowly strangling the paper uh, and the employees, um, is very much in the spirit of how the Post was operated in the 1920s when the management there took the, the doors off the stalls in the bathroom so that employees wouldn't linger there uh, too long. And uh, the, their current management practices are very much in line with that. Well, if it survived that era, our, our hopes that it will survive this era as well. Penfield Tate, attorney with QTAC Rock, also a longtime state lawmaker. Uh, the Post is weathering a difficult media transition. Uh, the, the Rocky did not survive it. Will the Post survive it? You know, I hope for all of our sake it does. Uh, it has weathered it, um, <laughs> although in much smaller and in altered um, condition. But when, when you watch the, from my perspective, the assault on the media from the national level, it just highlights the importance of having a daily newspaper where you can go to for a source of information. You have to use your own filter and decide how you, you accept it, but it's a convenient and good way to get a bunch of information about a lot of different topics. And so whether you do it electronically or I guess of the five of us here, three of us still get the, uh, an actual paper dropped on our, on our sidewalk. Um, it's important, and, and my hope is that it does continue and that, as David points out, the hedge fund running it realizes its importance beyond just its economic value and continues to let it be an important source of information for the community. Public Affairs Consultant Ben Gilt rounds out the panel for us. Uh, ben, uh, you have been known as one of our younger members, maybe not as young as uh, people think on our panel, but what do you think when you see the Post as a source of uh, information in Colorado? Necessary or the transition just part of the inevitability of media? Well, the 
the, the purpose of journalism and society is completely fundamental and necessary. Um, personally, I consume the Denver Post a lot. It's my number one news source because I'm an avid follower of local news and uh, local politics is sort of my milieu. I think, um, you know, everybody's touched on it. The, the uh, hedge firm or hedge fund that runs the thing is stripping it down. They've made some, what I would call, dubious decisions recently about some of their properties, like the cannabis, um, which has been exceedingly successful, and they've really recently started to stifle it. So I don't have a lot of optimism about what's coming for local journalism writ large. Um, I think that what we're seeing in this sort of decaying environment of trust, decaying environment of resources for journalists, particularly those that aren't at the top, the ones at the top, as I understand, are doing very well. Uh, it's really the middle and, the, and the, the sort of entry ranks that are really struggling. And I think it's bad for society. So it signals to me that we need to change the mechanisms of journalism. Here. Noelle Phillips from the Denver Post reported this week that the Denver Sheriff's Department is on pace to spend nearly as much on overtime in 2017 as it did last year. The department spent $14 million last year, even though nearly 200 more deputies have been hired this year. Safety officials say the overtime comes from training new recruits and costs should be more in line soon. Patty, uh, $14 million is a lot of money for two years in a row spent on overtime. I understand the uh, city official's explanation. What do you think about it? Well, first, I think this proves why a daily paper is so important. Noelle Phillips was here last week. She was working on this story at the time. She did a great job on the story because one of the... One of the roles is to be a watchdog. You need to know what's happening. And certainly, the Sheriff's Department has needed a watchdog for a long time. In fact, the big report in 2015 that came out um, that had many different practices that they wanted changed mentioned also that overtime was a red flag. There was way too much overtime. The new Sheriff, Patrick Furman, I think is doing pretty well in changing a lot of things, but it also takes time to catch up. So even though they've hired 200 new deputies and they're training them, you still are, have the overtime. But $14 million is a lot, and it's going to be a lot this year. So good for Noel for keeping an eye on it. And let's hope they manage to cut it down, because if you've got 200 more people, you shouldn't need that much overtime. One, one deputy got 100000 on top of his salary. That's a little more than we need to pay. It does seem excessive. Uh, David, besides being able to elect the sheriff, what other things can happen uh, that would ensure that we're not talking about this kind of issue next year? Well, if he's doing the, the job he says he is, and I, I agree with Patty, I think he's, he, he's made a good start, then it, it, it should go down once all of those 200 can become full-time workers. And, and besides the, the new ones, as, as Noel's excellent article pointed out, they've also been doing a lot of retraining or continuing professional education. Uh, for the existing staff, and but you know the issue of somebody and the guy made uh, over a hundred thousand overtime had several others who were making in, in the nineties, and often that 's done by public employees as a form of pension spiking because your retirement pay is a fraction of your highest salary in say the last three years before you retired so if you know you're going to be retiring in a few years you just you know you try to work around the clock and you make a have a very very high base for your pension Penn, you've had a lot of experience as a lawmaker and an expert on a variety of levels of government looking at budgets and seeing these kinds of explanations. So when you see the explanation of, hey, we had to hire 200 people, that's why the costs still remain the same, but it's going to be better next year, do you buy it? Buy it 
I wouldn't quite use that those words. I, what, what struck me as really odd in the article was the way the city responded to to the to the great work Noel did in in bringing this to light. Uh, you know, you've, the city never fully explained why you've got four officers who each earned over ninety thousand dollars just in overtime pay alone. Um, I'm sure those aren't the full, only four officers training everybody, so th there's no clarity there. The other thing the city didn't do that I think makes their whole rationalization hard to accept is, you know, when you see the trend over the last couple of years, I would have thought someone from the city would have given Noel some data saying, okay, once we get these 250 officers integrated, this is our trend line. There's, there was no talk about that, and I suspect it's because they're afraid to build expectations because if they bust the budget in the future, it's going to be worse. Because then the question will be, all right, you gave us this expectation, you wanted new officers, you got them, hopefully we'll stop getting sued over abuse of inmates and detainees, uh, but now why isn't the overtime cost going down? And so it leaves the impression that there's not really a plan in plan and management and oversight in the Department of Safety is something that a lot of people have been concerned about. And so there's still a long way to go and hopefully, you know, they've got some plans, they just didn't disclose them, but hopefully there's something else there. That's going to be the tale of whether we can believe what we're hearing or not. Ben, you've been a vocal critic of things happening in the city. That's, that's uh, not news to anybody watching the program on a regular basis. But as you see these developments, we have a new sheriff, we have 200 new recruits, and there are costs that go with that. Is it headed in the right direction from the way you see it? I, I think there's very little direction to really discern. Um, they brought in new leadership. Um, this notion that they're hiring 100 new recruits a year is actually not true. They have not been able to... to get to that level of staffing. So that's part of what is still being unpacked by some of my friends on the city council, trying to understand, okay, we're talking about training. We haven't actually brought in all these recruits. How can there be this many hours? Um, I thought it was also very telling, talking about the city's response, Penn. The mayor was unavailable for comment. And when we talk about management and oversight and accountability, all of these people work for the mayor. And it's very clear that the buck stops nowhere. So I, I'm not impressed. Former CSU Athletic Director and U.S. Senate candidate Jack Graham said this week that he is considering a run for governor in 2018. Graham said he wants to see if he can win the GOP nomination before he announces a formal decision next month. David, uh, last time we saw Jack Graham, he was running for U.S. Senate, and he had the formidable Dick Wadham, so the pretty good track record, running his campaign. But he's also running as a pretty distinct moderate. Uh, he's uh, pro-choice, as Republicans go. He's was likely, in fact, the other thing, he's been a Republican all that long. If he does jump in as the moderate in this governor, nominee, or governor candidate pool, what chance do you think he has? I, I don't think a, a strong one, because you can, you can look at the, the Senate race where he lost to a guy who actually had no campaign. Um, Daryl Glenn was very good about going out on his own and speaking and meeting people and super impressive uh, when he did that. But that, that was about the entire campaign structure. Um, and he, he couldn't beat that guy. And now in the uh, Republican gubernatorial field, there's a much more for formidable uh, set of people, starting with, with George Brockler, but who's been running and has a really strong operation and, and others as well. You know, and he said, what he calls moderate is he says he's for rational gun control. Well, 
everybody who's rational would be for rational gun control. Um, and But he's sort of implicitly saying that if he ever gets around to mentioning some specific issues, uh, that if you disagree with him, you're irrational. So that's not a particularly uh, good way to, to win over people by, you know, uh, displaying your moderation and, and immoderately criticizing other people. Penn, uh, I know the race within the, getting the Republican nomination will be difficult, but if, what do you think Democrats feel if there's a moderate like this in the possible field that if he somehow got out, do you think Democrats would be worried about running against a moderate Republican? I, I think Democrats would be concerned that it would be a different race and a tougher race with him in it. I mean, if you take a look, um, when, 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 when Graham lost the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate, there were many Republicans who just basically threw up their hands and said, we're sunk because Daryl Glenn isn't going to beat Michael Bennett because he's too extreme. And, and Daryl made no bones about the fact. He, he, you know, really ran on his conservative credentials and in many respects only met with arch conservatives. He didn't even care about moderate Republicans. He sort of wrote them off and just hoped that he'd get Republican support just by being the party's nominee. I, I, I think that what Jack Graham is doing is pretty interesting, and, and I don't know if it's lucky or savvy, but when you look at what's happening to the Republican Party nationally because of the president's behavior and the fact that a number of folks, some less moderate than others, are beginning to distance themselves, I think Jack Graham is sort of sending out a, uh, just a, a buoy or a beacon trying to figure out what sort of response he gets. He's letting folks in the party know I'm moderate, I'm pro-choice, I support LGBT rights, I support some sort of gun control, and I don't think he's trying to insult more conservative members of his party. He's simply saying, I support something, which many folks in my party don't even support anything. He's trying to get a read on whether moderates will come back to the party and support a candidacy like his. And if he gets in it and there's support there, he could be formidable. Ben, you have consulted a long list of candidates on the local level here in Denver, and probably some folks even thought uh, wider aspirations to the city of Denver. Mm -hmm. If the Graham campaign called up Ben Gelt and said, hey, we're on the fence, we're trying to figure this out, what advice, what, what do you offer them? You know, I think as a moderate Republican, he's going to have a very difficult time getting out of a primary field or even a caucus. Um, so I would probably suggest run as an independent. You avoid all the primary fighting. Uh, you can leverage your wealth. You can leverage your donor network. Um, there are other Republicans, most notably Walker Stapleton, who have yet to get in, who will be getting in, and will have a lot of money coming in from the outside. So if this is a trial balloon in the Republican Party, I suspect it will be popped post-haste. Uh, and if he's really serious about wanting to be governor, um, I think he should pursue a different path. And I think... Uh, that's how you capture the independent voters who make up a plurality uh, in Colorado and how you pull in those moderate Republicans and how you pull in uh, disaffected Democrats, of which there are very many. Patty, is the acclaimed clown car about to get more crowded? Yes, it is, because we do know Walker Stapleton. He's having his big fundraiser. Excuse me, it's not really his fundraiser. It's just a friendly fundraiser on the 21st. I think some rumors has it that Cynthia Kaufman is still kind of looking at it. So the clown car will get more crowded. And I think um, if Jack Graham runs as a Republican, he will be the bozo in the bunch, because you're right, as an independent, Tancredo got 30%. We have to remember... It is not impossible for an independent to win in this state. And especially given how people are disaffected from their parties, they might be looking for an alternative. And he has resources. That's true. That's true. 
The Denver City Council is chewing on more than a few big issues this month that may have a tremendous impact on the city of Denver and Colorado. In addition to the various projects in the Go Bond initiative, the expansion of the convention center and the airport terminal hall projects all face big decisions from the council soon. Penn, there are a lot of issues here to choose from. Uh, take your pick. We have the, the airport's huge, the, the convention center is far from settled, and all this happening in just the next few weeks. You, you know, the, and, and there are rumors out there that city council is beginning to express some concerns about their workload based on the magnitude of these really huge projects. The, the, the Great Hall project uh, is, is huge. Um, the convention center is obviously something we've been wrestling with for a while. And shortly on the heels of both of those, you've got the National Western Center complex coming up. And I mean, that's structured to be a hundred year deal. And so you've got a lot coming at city council, different factions, different points of view. Uh, you know, there is a hope that they won't slow too many of these things down. But it, it, they really need to be brought up to speed on a host of things. And they've got to sort some of this out because they all impact major policy issues. What happens with the Great Hall is significant because that impacts how DIA is going to function for many years to come. And DIA really is the gateway into our state, and it drives so much of the economic engine here. So the fact that they want to stop, be thoughtful, be deliberate, uh, makes sense. Same thing with the convention center, and it's going to be a huge deal with the National Western because they'll be presented with a 100-year contract and ask, you know, will you accept it? Ben, as you see all these different issues, you have the National Western Complex, you have the convention center, you have the airport. Do you think there's a, a common, whether it not be a, a core value or something uh, at that higher level that the council needs to keep in mind when looking at all these issues, even though they're quite different? Yes. I mean, I, I think that the council needs to be thinking about the next hundred years. And I think that, frankly, given the context of how this administration behaves, they need to really be thinking about it because no one else seems to be considering what the long-term impacts of these things are going to be. So uh, just picking one out of the hat, you know, talk about the Go Bond um, initiative that the mayor will be pushing this year, nearly a billion dollars in infrastructure funding, most of it earmarked for road expansion and repair. Uh, you know, when is he going to put his money where his mouth is when it comes to actually investing in multimodal, into doing the concomitant infrastructure development that we desperately need here to go along with all the growth that we're seeing? So I, I encourage the council to continue to raise questions, to slow down. Uh, this process if they're not certain about what the outcomes are going to be because the mayor's office has demonstrated for what six years now that they're all hat no cattle and these projects are just the same so we need more scrutiny of all these projects Patty, fortunately, uh, besides the infirmed and imprisoned, we have a lot of uh, viewers in Denver that care about Denver. So what do they need to be aware of as they look at all these issues coming down in their city council being decided in the next few weeks? Well, certainly it's a perfect storm of things that have to be decided in August. If the contract for DIA isn't settled by September 1, we face a $9 million fine. Uh, on the other hand, Shouldn't the city council have longer than a month, maybe five weeks, to really look through these documents? It's a huge package on a 34, it's not quite like the National Western Center, it's not 100 years, but it is a 34-year private partnership. With, and Denver will not have a lot of control. It'll be getting 80% of the money, but 
who knows what they want to put, you know, which stores they'll bring into the Great Hall for our fabulous new shopping arena. So there are a lot of things to consider. On the other hand, when you think about DIA, it was the first airport built in 20 years in this country, and it was the first one since airline deregulation. I mean, the city really took a flyer, took a chance on it. It's worked out better than anyone thought, but I don't think that means we can't give this a little more thought. And maybe it's worth a $9 million fine to actually make sure we considered every part of that contract. David, usually these big projects come down the pike, at least around this table, we find uh, six months, a year, a couple years down the road that there were a lot of things involved in the boondoggle that people hopefully should have caught earlier but didn't. Uh, are there any red flags you've seen so far or at least warning signs that you'd point city council members to before you pass this thing, before you sign that contract, pay attention to this fine print? No, because I, I have not read the 150,000-page document, <laughs> and probably most people haven't either, and that's the purpose of this collusion between both sides of this arm's-length contract to squeeze the city council from being able to have the time to review it. They didn't have to have this clause in there that if you don't uh, agree to this by September 1, then you have to pay us millions of dollars. You know, that could have, <clears throat> that didn't have to be in there, <clears throat> excuse me, and the DIA negotiators should have insisted that it not be in there. You, you may have, have some time, but this was way too short a period uh, for the contract to be properly considered. It's time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. And as always, Patty Calhoun, please start us off. Well, it was a week full of fire and fury all around the world, but it hit closer to home with the Sage Grouse decision. And Colorado and other Western states had really spent a lot of time and a lot of effort coming up with a plan that the Department of Interior managed to torpedo pretty quickly. David. The apologists for the totalitarian communist gun banning regime in Venezuela. Remember Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, all spent years hectoring Americans about how Venezuela is a better country than, than the United Kingdom or, uh, or the United States. Um, you should keep that in mind in assessing their future credibility. Penn. Uh, how our administration in Washington still behaves on the international level. It's interesting. I've been traveling a lot, lot the past few months, and I just returned from a trip in Tennessee. Tennessee, where people are sitting in restaurants talking about, can you believe what he said today? Can you believe what he did today? How do we have a president doing this stuff? Indeed, America, how do we, how do we have a president doing this stuff? Ben. Got to go along with that. Um, it's just a disgrace to see how our nation is backsliding on the global stage. It was interesting to see Guam on the front page of newspapers and Startling. TV. <laughs> Folks be remembering, wait a second, Guam. Uh, it's, it was certainly interesting. Uh, I want to mention a disgrace we thought that was sent in by Harmony Cummings. She mentioned the fact that it's a disgrace that there are not more public restrooms near the Civic Center, especially with access for uh, young moms and children. Now it's time to say something nice about somebody. Patty. I'm going to say too fast. We have another 125th anniversary, the Brown Palace, this weekend. Lots of events down there. Also downtown, it, the, the whole Bellarama, Colorado Classic, should be very entertaining. And the city did get something done. They got the Rhino Pedestrian Bridge done this morning. <laughs> Good timing. So ride your bicycle or walk. <laughs> David. Well, Guam, which is actually doing quite well, part of the United States since, I think, 1898, um, as a tourist center for people from East Asia who want to go to some kind of American experience and 
mega malls and Kentucky Fried Chicken and, and all that kind of stuff. But let's not also forget it's the southern part of the island chain that is also part of the United States, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. So they, they too are at risk uh, from North Korea's tyrant. Penn. Um, I, the Denver Post still. I, I think that is significant to, to have a newspaper of that long-standing tenure here in town. And I would just offer to, to Harmony, um, if you think we need more restrooms, tell the city to put more of those portable trailers or whatever they have. Um, we could use more of those, if nothing else. I have seen those more often around, yeah. uh, around town. That certainly would be a, a Good start. helpful addition. That's, uh, yeah. Ben. Uh, City Councilman Rafael Espinoza for his role uh, this past Monday helping to delay vote on another big infrastructure issue that is a really bad idea, the Central Denver I-70 expansion. He forced the council to table uh, an action to go forward with that project and, and consider more deeply. So hats off to you, Councilman. And I want to say something nice about one of our viewers, longtime viewers, uh, William Gross. He is uh, a special, uh, has a special place in our hearts here at Colorado Inside Out. It was uh, many years ago that he called up, and he's actually one of our blind viewers. And he had talked about, well, you, you missed this on a last show. And I thought, well, no, he must be mistaken. And I turned on the, the TV at that point to see exactly what was going on. And indeed, we were running the wrong show. William has uh, caught us speeding a variety of times. We've always been grateful. And he's always been there to uh, keep us honest. We he had, he had just gotten over a, a recent health scare, so we're excited to have him back and join Colorado Inside Out like he always should be, and for all the contributions he's done. In fact, you see that we mentioned the date of the show at the top of the show each time. That was actually an idea submitted by our own friend, William Gross. So, William, hope you're uh, uh, doing well, and we appreciate all your contributions to this program. And it's been a lot of fun. We've been celebrating the 25th anniversary of this program all year, and at the towards the fall, we're going to be celebrating it with a special program all about the the history of the show. We've been able to have some really fun conversations with uh, none other than uh, Dick Wadhams and Alan Salazar, who hopefully are both watching. And even though from different sides of the political aisle, it's been fun to see that folks out there, important folks being part of these decisions or advising the folks that are making these decisions are watching this show. So it's, it's flattering for us, and we've really appreciated everyone's help with the documentary so far, and we hope you'll be able to enjoy it probably around late October. That is all the time we have tonight. Thank you for tuning in. We're kicking off our August Pledge Drive this weekend. The drive will include, we'll have some really great specials, including Pink Floyd, The Early Years, and Birth of the Living Dead, which is all about, of course, the iconic movie Night of the Living Dead. It's by far one of our more tongue-in-cheek pledge breaks, so please check it out. As always, check out the CIO podcast on iTunes and Google Play, and all of our segments of the show from Facebook, on Facebook and Twitter. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.